This morning is August 15th. It's Sunday morning, and our message this morning is called Married to a Fool. As I was telling you a few moments ago, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 25. I was coming back last night from a fairly long day uh, that I believe was totally prompted by the Spirit, that we visited with some people that live kind of far from the church. They come occasionally, but since they're not able to get to church, we tried to bring church to them. And on the, on the way back, it was nearly 1 o'clock in the morning, I was sharing some of the message that I thought I was going to preach today with my, my wife. And uh, I told her that the title was Married to a Fool. And she just kind of smiled. She thought that was the neatest thing on earth. <laughs> kind of unnerved me a little bit, you know? <laughs> I told her about really neat shadows and types. Uh, explained her things that I think are the deep things of God and all, and never got a reaction like that. But I told her to the sermon title, and she got all giddy with excitement about married to a fool. Uh, maybe she's trying to tell me something. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 25. This is one of those um, instances where everybody in the world will say, if you're preaching to a large group of people, or even a small group of people this morning, don't read extended passages. You lose people in it. Don't give long narratives. People can't. Pay attention to that. Well, we're, we're going to break the rules. This story is so beautiful this morning that I don't think we can truncate it. I, I don't think we can just give you a verse here and a verse there. We need to read this chapter. And when you read this chapter, there is a story that is going on that is in ancient Israel that's enlightening, that's beautiful. But once you apply it to your life, once you really see the ways that God's manifold wisdom can be displayed in Scripture, it, it, it's touching. I was... In Israel, and they told me anywhere there's two Jews, there's at least three opinions. Now, I found that that's not all that untrue in the church. <laughs> the very same thing seems to apply. This is a great example where David might read this scripture, Patricia might read this scripture, and Judah might read this scripture, and all three people have different stories out of it because the Word of God is deep. I mean, it's a deep well, and you can get lots of beautiful water out of it. I'll just tell you this morning what I got out of it. So we're in 1 Samuel 25. Anybody know who... Let me think about it this way. Anybody know who Nabal is? I mean, does that ring a bell? Nabal's probably not a real studied guy in Scripture. Uh, a lot of names in Scripture. My son's named Judah. There's lots of Judas in the Bible. There's lots of Noahs in the Bible. I mean, there's even a female Noah. Most names in the Bible, there's quite a few people with that name or some very close derivative of the name. Like Judah, Judas, all of those are, are the same word. Uh, even John. Uh, eventually breaks its way down from there. Uh, Jesus, Joshua, all of those very close. Nabal is unique, though. I wonder why nobody wanted this name. Why, why would there only be one Nabal in all of Scripture when there's so many other names? Well, well, we'll get to that. When you think of Nabal, you don't think of a real tall, good-looking, handsome kind of guy, though, do you? No, I don't either. How about Abigail? You know, names are a funny thing. When you know somebody with a name... That, that shapes your perception of that name. If when you were in second grade, there was a girl named Caroline that was a heavy redhead that knocked out your two front teeth, you know, you probably wouldn't name your children Caroline because when you think of Caroline, it, it's a heavy redhead that knocked out your two front teeth, which, by the way, happened to me. So uh, <laughs> I'll never, never have a, a child named Caroline. That, although I did meet Caroline Knapps, and that forever changed my opinion. Well, now that I've named a child Judah, it doesn't seem like an odd name, but there was a time it did, those, those kind of things. Well, Abigail's one of those names for me. When I first hear the name Abigail, I think of a, a stuffy Brit or a, a librarian with an ugly haircut. Uh, you know, I, Abigail does not bring to mind, you know, uh, elegance, and I, I don't think of a chic person. Let's, let's just put it that way. But after meeting the Abigail in the Bible, and by the way, there's only one Abigail in the Bible spelled this way. There's a second that is a sister to David with a different spelling. Similar phonetic sound, but different spelling. Only one Nabal, only one Abigail. And I think it would be very obvious as we look at this scripture, as we read this morning and we look at their names, what the Lord's trying to teach us through this. Why there's only one. Why he didn't confuse the issue, you know. You all in 1 Samuel 25? Okay. By the way, did anybody uh, spend time reading or learning the Shema after our last message? Or how about the Aaronic blessing? Guys, don't let the week go by without putting into practice 
what or putting into production what we've practiced in here. Just like the sign up there. Perform out there what you've practiced in here. Doesn't do us any good to meet in the huddle, then go out to the playing field of life and forget to play. You know, we really do need to think. The reason that I taught you all the Shema, the reason that I taught you the Aaronic blessing, and we went through the whole message about Zacchaeus and the sycamore fig tree and all of those things, was so that you'd find an application for it in your life. Don't leave on a Sunday just entertained. I mean, it's a waste of everybody's time. You can be entertained by watching Seinfeld or The Simpsons or whatever else you might want to watch. You don't come to church to get entertained. You come to learn. So please think about, yeah, there's another copy over there I saved for you. Think about what was taught the previous Sunday. Meditate on it some during the week. I was telling Matthew this morning, this is the third Sunday in a row. I've been preaching now for almost ten years. But this is the third Sunday in the row something unique's happened that's never happened before. I got a word of knowledge that revolved around one name or two names of people in the Bible that to me I was not very familiar with. I mean, I knew something about it, but certainly not what I'm going to teach this morning. And I woke up the Sunday of, studied it, and that was the message. That's unique. I literally got words of knowledge about what we were supposed to teach on without understanding the concept. It just came. One was Adonai Bezak, another was Zacchaeus, and here we go, Abigail and Nabal. And uh, what I'm trying to tell you is I'm not doing this for entertainment value, and I'm not making this stuff up. I believe God's giving it to us. So let's put it into practice. We're in 1 Samuel 25. Y'all didn't come to hear me lecture you about studying either, did you? Okay. It says, yeah. 1 Samuel 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Moan. A certain man in Moan who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean and his dealings. You know, the Bible tells you not to be unequally yoked, and that usually relates to marriage. Sometimes we, we cause it, we, but through application, make it talk about partnerships of any kind. Here is a woman who is intelligent and beautiful, and she's yoked to a surly, mean man. Now, the Bible doesn't say he wasn't intelligent. The Bible doesn't say he wasn't handsome. But right away, when you say surly and mean, do you think of somebody who's handsome? Think of somebody that's intelligent. No. The Bible's painting a description for us. By the way, just to give you kind of a, a clue of where we're going, anybody want to take a stab at what Nabal means? Well, one guess was wicked. Another guess was fool. Nabal means fool. Now, when we say fool in English, and sometimes in the Proverbs this is true too, but for the vast majority of times, biblical fool is different than English fool. English, and sometimes in the Proverbs, fool means a lack of intelligence. Somebody who's just not all that bright, a dunce, right? In the Bible, fool tends to mean somebody who is morally deficient, not quite smart enough to get it right. In other words, not stupid, just not somebody who makes good choices. This is why you're in danger of hellfire if you call your brother a fool. You're saying, hey, buddy, you are too stupid to find God. You know, not, not that you're not smart. You're so uh, inept morally, you're not going to be able to find God. When the Bible wants to make this very clear, they call you a wicked fool. Well, I don't know who Nabal's mother was, but somehow or another he got the name fool. Now, Abigail. I wonder what Abigail's name might mean. It means my father rejoices. She was an intelligent, beautiful woman, and her name means my father rejoices. So we have a marriage here between my father rejoices and a wicked fool. The title to the message is Married to a Fool. You know, when two people get married, what does Genesis say they are? One flesh. Within your flesh, I wonder if you have something that makes the father rejoice and something else that's a wicked fool. Let's keep reading and we'll see how the story plays out. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, 
Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that's yours. Now, if this isn't starting to trigger some thought in you, why young men? Why not old men? Because these men were new. They were something that is new on the earth. And God, at some point in human history, after he had interactions with all of mankind on earth, sent some commandments that were new. They embodied all of his commandments in ten. And relatively speaking, they were young on the earth. The the fact that he did this was a new thing. And he sent ten. And the idea of the commandments, the reward for the law, was just what David said to this guy after he sent ten young men to greet him in his name. It says, long life to you. Do you remember if you honor your father and mother? What happens? Long life to you. That's one of the commands. These commands, he says, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that's yours. Do you know that while Israel followed the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day, their sandals didn't wear out. They didn't get sick. While they were following the commands of God, these things were true. There was a reward for following the commands. But this call came. It didn't reach Abigail. When David called out, he called first to the wicked fool. They were one flesh. They were in the household. But what we're going to read here is that the servants of David went and they gave a message and it showed Nabal's heart. The intent was long life and good blessings. But watch this. Verse 6. I'm sorry. Verse 7. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my young men. Since we come at a festive time, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Acts 14:17 speaks of God not leaving himself without testimony in all of the earth. Not talking about Israel who received his special revelation, but talking about all of the earth. God did not leave himself without testimony. Do you know why? Because he said, I gave you good things. I brought all mankind rain. I fed you. I brought your crops in their season. I didn't leave myself without testimony, and now I've sent people in my name to you. What David is telling Nabal here is, I've been around you. I've been where your shepherds are. I didn't take anything from your shepherds. In fact, later on we're going to find out David even protected his shepherds. He didn't leave himself without testimony as to what kind of guy David was, who in this shadow and type is like God, who has not left himself without testimony. You can look around the world and see that he cares for the sparrows. He cares for the dandelion in the field. He has not left himself without testimony in creation. So he sent people in his name. Matthew 21, verse 9, is quoting the prophets. And he says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Acts 5, verse 41, says they counted themselves, or they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. The Lord sent people in his name. Sometimes you meet Nabal and sometimes you meet Abigail. It says in verse 9, When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? Turn with me to Galatians real quick. Keep your finger there, though. Be Galatians 5, starting in about verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. The old King James word for that is flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. 
sorry, I, my page flip. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say live by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. That ought to remind you of Romans 7. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy. Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Turn back to 1 Samuel 25. What you see is a man, David, who has been kind to Nabal, who had the power to harm him, but didn't. Had the power to steal from him but didn't, had the power to take what he wanted, indulge his sinful nature, and yet he didn't. He treated Nabal in a godly fashion. Nabal was wealthy. He was prosperous. He had all the sheep, all the goats he could possibly want. So David says, hey, as a testimony of my good behavior, I want you to know I never harmed your shepherds. I never did anything as a testimony about my name, and now I'm sending people in my name to you, and I'm asking you for something. And Nabal says, hey, who are you? Who's the son of Jesse? Aren't you just some servant broken away from a master? Shows him no honor, no respect. This ought to remind you of John, where it says that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and he went to that which was his own and they received him not. Or the conversations between Jesus and the Pharisees when they say, isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? You know, who is this guy? Man, he comes from Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? How they treated him. They acted as if he was someone of no account, little accord. Even though his reputation, even though everything about him spoke about the name that he had been sent in. And that it was a good name. And he should have been well received. And he wasn't. How does Nabal Nabal respond? He responds by saying, why should I give you my water, my meat, my, 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 my? Nabal is a fool and he stands for your flesh. Your flesh is foolish. Nothing good, Paul said, dwells in it. It causes you to not be able to do the good that you want to do. See, this morning we're talking about a woman who's married to a man, but we're talking about the marriage of your flesh and your spirit. Because it's one, and it's in you. Find out that you want to be Abigail. You want to be the guy or the girl that the Father rejoices over. But you're married to a wicked fool in your flesh. And all of your Christian life revolves around the ability to be Abigail and not Nabal because both exist in you. When you tell a bunch of women, especially lost women, something about being married to a wicked fool, they immediately think of all of their husband's deficiencies. The beautiful thing about the Word of God is it's a mirror. It will show you your deficiencies. See, it's possible to read this story and come away just thinking, boy, Nabal was an idiot and Abigail was wonderful. And never consider that the Word of God is a mirror. It is supposed to show you you. But when you look into the Word that brings you life as a mirror, as a wash basin that shows your guilt and how to be redeemed, what you see is your Nabal and your Abigail. How do you be one and not the other? Verse 12. David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords, and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Have you ever read about David's 30 mighty fighting men? Have you ever read about the chief of the three? One stands in a pit with a leopard and a seven-foot-tall Egyptian on a snowy day and kills them both. 
Another stands and his hand freezes to a sword as he strikes down garrisons of Philistines. What do you think 400 of them could do? This is like when you read about one angel facing Sennacherib's army for God and he puts to death 150,000 men in a single night. And then Jesus stands before Pilate and says, do you think I have uh, more than 12 legions? More than 12 legions of angels at my disposal? The whole idea is if one kills 700 in David's mighty fighting men, or if one angel kills hundreds of thousands, what do you think legions would do? Or what do you think 400 would do? The force was more than sufficient to handle Nabal. More than sufficient. The Word clearly says in Romans to be carnally minded is death. If you live by the sinful nature, you will die. All of us have Nabal in our life. All of us have the sinful nature. But you are not to present yourself as a slave to it. Now you can real quickly go through that list that we read in Galatians and go, well, I'm not in orgies. And, you know, I'm not doing this and this and this. Come on, let's talk about selfish ambition. Let's talk about jealousies. How about discord? Do you know what discord is? Discord is if Matthew plays a chord and one string is out of tune. Tell me you don't practice discord in your life. Of course we do. But we need to find a way to put it to death because it brings the sword of David upon your head. That's what it does. Now, here's the funny thing. In a household, marriage, when you have a woman and a man, who's the head? The head of this household, though, is a wicked fool. You know why? In the shadow and type, Nabal is the wicked fool. Because you are most likely to be led by Nabal in your life. The most natural thing for you to do in and of yourself is to be led by your flesh. It's what comes natural to you. When somebody slaps your face, you don't immediately, overwhelmingly go, Oh, wow! I will turn the other. Nabal wants to rise in you immediately. It's the first thought that comes to your mind. He slapped me. I will crush him. You know? Not just an equal response, but an inordinate response. Because deep down we are selfish human beings. And we have to find a way for the life of God to put to death the misdeeds of our flesh. And we've been empowered by the Spirit to do it. But in the charismatic realm, we talk about the anointing and we talk about all of this stuff so much that we forget that there is a dead man attached to us that speaks for us most of the time. And the sickest thing that we do is we allow the dead man to speak, the wicked fool, and we call it the anointing of God. I've noticed that in the charismatic realm, we say what we want and then charge God's name to it. Well, God told me to. Now, we need to be careful what we lay at the feet of the Lord. I wonder if God really told as many people to do these stupid things that they've done, me included. I can look back with honesty in my life and see He didn't always tell me to get it myself into the jams that I've gotten into. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, see, there's a third part to a human being. You're not just a wicked fool and somebody who causes the Father to rejoice. You're not just flesh and spirit. What else does a human being have in them? You have this link between the two. See, you are a spirit. That's who you are. When you look in the mirror, what is behind your eyeballs is a spirit. We've named you. You're Cassidy. You're Matthew. You're Judah. That is the part of you that's eternal, that's lasting, that is forever. That's what gets the name. That's who you are. But you live in a body. That's Nabal. That's your flesh. That's the wicked fool. But there's something else. You're not just a two-part being. You're like God. You were made to be like Him. You were made in His likeness. How many parts does God have? Three. He's one, but He has three parts. The third part of you is your soul. You know what your soul is supposed to be? A servant to your spirit. In reality, though, your soul often submits to the flesh. Your soul is your mind, your will, your emotions. And put under the right master, your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions submitted to your spirit that's been made new, that is pleasing to the Father, will cause your flesh to submit. The two will gang up on the other. But what we often do is we spend all of our mind, our will, and our emotions serving the flesh's desire. I want this. Let me see how I can justify it. I want to do that. Why am I right? 
in their role. I want, I want, I need, I have. And your soul works as a servant of the flesh. And the two gang up on your spirit. And God's will is not done in your life. Golly, Eric, you're beating up on us now. But this is a mirror. It's a mirror. When I looked in it, this is what I saw about myself. And I suspect if it's true of me, and God's called me to be a pastor, that perhaps, just perhaps, it's true in your lives. And the best way to not step on the snake is to know that it's there. Let's be aware. Let's look at our lives with sober judgment. Let's not run around from bless me group to bless me group with our tape recorders and our gold dust and holy laughter and every other ridiculous thing that's ever floated through the church. And I say floated for a reason. It's garbage. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail. See, there was a servant in the household of Abigail and Nabal. And he came and he told Abigail something. There was a servant in Abraham's household. What was his name? The chief servant in Abraham's household. Eleazar. What does his name mean? God the Comforter. See, your soul is affected by the Holy Spirit, the servant of God. He can teach your soul to be a servant to your spirit. He can teach your mind, your will, and your emotions to benefit that part of you that causes the Father to rejoice. Well, this servant comes to Abigail and says, David sent messengers. He's bringing into remembrance the Word of God for her. David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields, near them nothing was missing. Night and day there were a wall around us. All the time we were herding our sheep near them. A wall around. The Holy Spirit, the servant, and the soul working together here bring to Abigail's remembrance the good things that David has done for them. You know, earlier you could get the impression that David just didn't mistreat Nabal. But what the Holy Spirit shows you here is not just that David didn't mistreat Nabal. He was protecting him. That makes Nabal's crime against him even greater, doesn't it? Have you ever been around church people when you were lost? And you thought, oh, they think they're better than me. And all these things, and you ascribe to them bad feelings. It's easy to think of when you were lost since you've been a saint. Have you ever thought of your brother or your sister on your right or your left behind you or in front of you? And thought those things. And then the Holy Spirit comes and begins to witness to your soul so that your soul can get a grip with your spirit upon the flesh. Oh, no. No, they weren't, they weren't harming you. In fact, they were protecting you. Maybe the reason they didn't tell you that is it would have been gossip and it would have hurt you. They weren't excluding you. They weren't leaving you out. They were protecting you. They were being a wall around you. Now, that's not what your flesh said. Your flesh cried, What about me? They left me out. They didn't take care of me. They're harming me. But then the Holy Spirit can come and speak to your mind, your will, and your emotions. And the Holy Spirit causes your soul to align with your spirit and you can overcome the flesh. That's what the Christian walks about. Well, it's happening in Nabal's household. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings. But he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. The whole time we were out in the fields near them, Nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us. All the time, we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over. (laughs) Reason that out. And see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. You know what the Spirit will show you when you're wrong? He'll show you that you're wrong and that if you stay in your sin, disaster hangs above your head. See, the Holy Spirit's not just here to show you things to come. Not just here to remind you the words of Jesus. He convicts the world of sin. That's what He does. He convicts the world of sin. And when you act like the world, He convicts you of sin. And we become masters of putting off that still small voice. Working. Never never admitting that we're slowly searing our conscience. But you learn to live with hate. As a Christian... You ought not be able to spend one night in unforgiveness against anybody else. But if you practice it long enough, you can learn to do it. The Spirit speaks to you. And at first you're uncomfortable and you can't sleep. And you put off. Over time, you learn to sleep very well. 
It happens. We need not to let it happen. Abigail lost no time. You want to be pleasing to God? When you identify in yourself, Nabal, when you identify in yourself when a servant of God, when the Holy Spirit brings to your soul the, the knowledge that you've acted like Nabal instead of Abigail, lose no time. Quit debating it. Quit praying about it. Go make it right. Quit thinking in your head, well, what if I go and admit and say I'm sorry and I'm wrong before they do? And this is the third time that I've done it. That'll just encourage them to do it again. Quit thinking about all of those things in your reasoning. Quit reasoning God out. Lose no time when God makes His will clear to you. Quit praying about His will and go do it. I've quoted Reinhard Bonke for years about it. You pray for the will of God and He will run you over doing the will of God. Most of the time you know you just don't like what you know. You work it out in your head until you've justified what you want and why it's okay for you to do what you want. And slowly you're pushing Jesus out of the throne in your life and exalting yourself and you can't receive a blessing that way. You know why Moses was fit to lead Israel? He was the most humble man on the planet. He didn't even defend himself when his own sister and brother came against him. He didn't even go out to defend himself. And so God defended him. Where is that spirit in us? When you're attacked, do you defend yourself? Oh, well, I do very good when it's outside the home. Well, how about with your spouse? You know? Integrity is not what you do when other people are looking. It's what you do when no one is looking. That's why if I speak to you with kind words and psalms and proverbs, that's wonderful. But if I speak to my wife with cursings and harsh words... You know, what I did was show. All of us have a little bit of Nabal in us. We need to learn to put him to death. Some of us have a lot of Nabal in us, if we're painfully honest. In our relationships, as we're bound with, with other people and covenanted for life, it's patently obvious that one of us plays Nabal more than the other. That That happens. Do you know the single biggest handicap you'll ever see in the kingdom? And it's everywhere. All you've got to do is look around. I mean, it's heartbreaking that it's everywhere. We call it mismatchings. Everybody's a Christian, but some take it more serious than others. You know? When you look around to find a couple where both really love the Lord with all of their heart and their actions show it, it's rare. That is such a shame. It's rare. And it is such a shame. Think about it. Think about the people that you know. Usually one is dragging the other unwillingly in the kingdom. Oh, they want all the blessings of the kingdom, but they will make none of the sacrifices unless they are made to. Well, what can you do? You do what you do inside you when your flesh wants to drag you off into sin. You pray that the servant of God, the Holy Spirit, will work in their mind, their will, and their emotions. Get it right. You encourage. You do whatever it takes to lift them up, even if it means you might drown. That's that's how the kingdom works. The only thing that you can't do is cross your arms, point out to the whole world that your spouse is a loser. You know why? God has called us to be joined. You can't. You're one flesh. That's just like you pointing out to the whole world. You know, about one third of me is a big loser. It's true. It's true. Everybody knows it's true. But that's not what we dwell on. You dwell on the one-third of you that is pleasing to God. And you force your spirit to lean on your soul, to gang up on the flesh, to get all of you in line. And it's a process. And thank God it's not over yet. Because I haven't gotten anywhere close to succeeding yet. And when you look at a marriage and you want to judge and go, Oh, well, you know, Jennifer loves Jesus a whole lot more than Eric. And it's gone. Our marriage is not through yet. This is a covenant for life. And we're progressing. Look, I know stuff happens. I know it does. There are times that covenants have been cut right down the middle and each go their own way. And it's just as painful as if somebody tried to separate the three parts of you and anybody that's ever lived been around a divorce. You've seen it. You're handicapped for the rest of your life in some regard. Oh, you heal. There's restoration. You move on. There's a part of you that never gets totally healed. You know, or your kids or anybody else that's with you. You carry that forever. 
So what are we going to do? We're going to live in unity. We are going to suppress the flesh. We're going to allow the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to show our soul how to gang up with the Spirit on the flesh instead of vice versa. You know, we spend an awful lot of time feeding the flesh. And if you hadn't opened your Bible since last Sunday, but you've turned on your TV six, seven times since then, you know, quit lying to yourselves about what's most important. Quit acting, quit appeasing your conscience in that way. You say, well, Eric, I watch you and I see what you do. All right, well, we're not talking about me. Each of us is talking about ourselves. Get it right. Mandy prophesied today. She didn't know she prophesied, but she did. She prophesied that it's daylight when man can work. Night's coming when no man can work. Nobody seems to know what that means. You know what it means? It means death will come upon you. And all the work you've done had to have been done in your day, in your lifetime. Oh, we have a limited amount of time to do God's will now. If you spend all of your time in jealousies and discords and fighting and backbiting, you don't get God's work done. Quit fighting. Quit fighting amongst yourselves. Quit fighting with each other. And in yourself, make up your mind. I will do God's will every time. I won't argue about what God's will is. I won't spend endless hours debating it because I don't like it. When it becomes apparent, I will do it. I will lose no time. You know why new Christians get so much accomplished? They're too stupid to reason out in their flesh what God told them. They don't have this God would never tell me that kind of mentality. They don't know enough to know that. They just heard something and they lost no time to do it. You know, like, like Philip, they ran to the Ethiopian eunuch. They, they're willing, I know, because it was me. And as you gain more knowledge and you become more mature and more balanced, in all the words we use for compromise, you quit doing that. Let's return to what we did in the beginning. You know, that's how you live a fruitful life. And so what if you screw it up sometimes? If you screw up, do it moving, not sitting still. You know? Hesitation will kill you in a car wreck, on a football field, and in the kingdom of God. Quit hesitating all of the time. When God speaks to you, move immediately. And if in retrospect it wasn't God speaking, that's all right. You moved in faith. It's a whole lot better than sitting in disbelief. I will move in faith rather than sit in disbelief. That needs to become an axiom that you live by. All right, back to Nabal. Back to Abigail. We are in uh, verse 18. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. You know, when she lost no time, she didn't just take a little bit. Baby loaded down donkeys to go make David happy. You know, there are times you heard from God. You know, God said, how? Eric, I, I really would like you to empty your bank account for that young lady, for that person. Didn't tell you why. You don't even know who they are. Well, you were obedient. You ran over and gave them three dollars. You had three hundred, but you gave them three. So hey, a tithe, you know, belongs to the Lord. Well, that would have been thirty, but you follow me. You find a way. Well, I was obedient. I did what he said. No, you didn't. You know, we can practice malicious obedience. Do y'all know what malicious obedience is? Malicious obedience, if you've ever worked for an overbearing boss, you can relate to this. It'd be like, if, let's, let's pretend I'm the CEO of a manufacturing company at the moment, all your employees. And I say, David, I want you to make the wheels on the widgets. Don't you do anything? I want you to make wheels. David, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you making wheels? And I'm all the time harping on David. Well, it's Jennifer's job to make the axles that go on the wheels, and she's sick one day. And we have to produce a hundred of these widgets that need wheels and axles. David then says, he told me to make the wheels. I ain't making the axles. That's malicious obedience. It's when you know something ought to be done, but because somebody's been hard to you, you're maliciously obedient to exactly what they said and nothing else. Y'all seen businesses run that way? I've had the misfortune to be in lots of them that ran that way. You know, well, he told me to do this. That's my job and I'm not doing anything else. You know? We do that in the kingdom sometimes. Well, God told me to do that. Yeah, well, the whole intent was not that you just give them some amount of money. It was that you did what God told you to do, and you did it in an overwhelming fashion. Kind of like when the prophet tells the king, take those arrows, beat them against the ground. 
And then the prophet was upset with the king because he only did it three times. So he was only delivered from some of his enemies. If he'd beat him a whole bunch of times, he'd... Whatever you do with God, do with your whole heart. This girl lost no time when she heard about the injustice. When she heard about what the flesh's desire was, she loaded down not one donkey, but donkeys. With not just a few fig cakes, hundreds of them. And those numbers, you ought to study sometimes. They're not in there by accident. Go ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. Why do you think Abigail didn't tell Nabal? She didn't tell him because she didn't want to be talked out of what God had told her to do. There are times when you said, well, you know, I said to myself, don't talk to self. Self's a bad guy. You know, self is not somebody you're supposed to be in conversation with. He's on the wrong team. He's perishing. He's in decay. He's not been redeemed yet. You know when you can talk to self? After you're glorified. After you're glorified, then you can talk to self because self has been glorified. But until then, quit talking to self. Quit thinking to yourself. When God speaks to you, when you want to do something, quit thinking about it in your flesh. Quit thinking about the consequence of being obedient to God. Well, if I do what God said, what will happen to me? You know, is it possible that Nabal might kill his wife over this? Yeah, he's a wicked fool. Is it possible he might beat her? Might give her away to some slave traders? You know, there's no telling what he might do. But she lost no time. She didn't tell him. She just did it because she was working for the honor of the king. And you know what? He wasn't even king yet. But she knew he was going to be. That's faith, isn't it? That's Rahab kind of faith. All of a sudden, Abigail's looking like a good name for a daughter, isn't it? (laughs) And she came riding on her donkey into a mountain ravine. There were David and his men descending towards her. Why were they descending? Why were they descending towards her? What had David decided to do? Judgment was coming upon Nabal. Judgment was coming upon the flesh. But that part of us which is pleasing to God stretched out to draw near to God. He drew near to her. And she prevented judgment in her household. Your flesh may have caused you to do things that are horribly sinful. All the good that you wanted to do, you may not have been able to do. And all the bad you didn't want to do, you find yourself doing. But if that part of you that has been redeemed by God will stretch out towards Him, you can prevent judgment in your life. David was on his way with 400 men and a sword, but she met him on the way. David had just said, It's been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. Which one of us has not paid back God evil for the good He's shown us? Which one of us could it not be said His work in us has been useless? He died for us. He empowered us. He's taught us. He's educated us. And we've sat on our hands and laid back on our salvation. There are times it seemed useless. But if one little part of us called Abigail reaches out to Him, it prevents judgment. It finds such mercy. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely. If by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. The sentence of death was on Nabal. This is not unlike when God says to Pharaoh in Egypt, I'm going to kill all your firstborn. I'm going to kill them all. And he did. And the angel of death passed through. That's what this is like. David said, hey, God will deal with me ever so severely if I don't kill them all. Until he met Abigail. That part which makes the father so happy. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David. There's a whole other message right there. Donkeys represent the human will. She laid hers aside. She got off of it and she fell at the feet of the king with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. For the person that is redeemed... We don't blame our flesh for our mistakes. We don't blame our soul. We certainly don't blame our spouse. We don't blame others around us. You own up to it before God like the man or woman that God's called you to be. Say, let it rest on me alone. I need your mercy. You know, if Cain had just said, Lord, you told me. You told me sin was at my door and that I had to master it. And I blew it. I didn't do it. I'm sorry. You know, he had found even more mercy than he already did. But instead, he had such a bad attitude, you know? And that's, that's the case with so many. You caught red-handed and you pointed everybody but you. 
We need to find a way just to say, you know what, I'm sorry. I blew it. Look, I'm going to prostrate myself before you and humble myself. You need to do it with your spouses. You need to do it with your children, with your coworkers, with yourself, with God for sure. So, but I did this yesterday. He heard me yesterday, and here I am again. You need to do it every day. You need to do it every time. You need to never stop doing it. You need to never give up on humbling yourself before God that He might exalt you. My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. There's a part of me that's such a fool. I didn't, I didn't mean not to do your will. I just didn't listen to your word like I was supposed to. Lord, I, I, I admit it. I'm a fool at times. I want to be your servant, though. I want to do what you want me to do. Help me. That's the kind of attitude. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master, because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. Let's switch for a minute from Abigail. And not in the shadow and type of David as God, but how about David the man? David the man had been wronged here. And he wanted to take righteous vengeance. But what does the Scripture tell us? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. There are times you are the hands and feet of the Lord, and you may be an instrument of vengeance. David was many times in his life. But has the Lord spoken to him here and told him to do this? No. What in David spoke to David to tell him to do this? The Nabal and David. You know, there are so many times that because we're God's anointed, we assume that our every action is approved by God, and it's not. You can sing. You're anointed to sing. You can preach, and you're anointed for it. People, oh, wow, they're anointed. So that must make everything you do right, huh? Not at all. Nabal's in all of us, and you have to put it to death. If you don't, he naturally becomes the head of your life because it's what he was made to do. It's in you. Jews call it the evil inclination. We call it the uh, product of original sin. I like the Jewish version. Evil inclination. Men have evil inclinations. So David uh, listens to Abigail. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive at daybreak. Why do you think it was important that Abigail lost no time? See, there are times God speaks, and you have to be obedient then because the moment will pass. You know, in reading the book Eternity in Their Hearts, I read about people groups who had been prepared uniquely by God, who had seen the testimony of God around them without ever hearing special revelation. They had seen in the creation the evidence of God. And so God spoke to people for them to go. But before they got there, because they lost time on their way, people like the conquistadors came and killed them all or brought them Catholicism or brought them some other wicked thing, Islam in one case. You know, because the servants of God lost time. They waited. They deliberated. They formed committees. They reasoned it out, decided whether or not it was feasible, whether they could accomplish it. And then they went. 
Abigail lost no time and she saved everybody's life. How many times has your deliberation cost someone their life? You wanted to pray for somebody. You wanted to tell them about Jesus, but you began to think, what will they think about me? What happens if I pray for them and they don't get out of the wheelchair? Meanwhile, another soul enters hell. Another person goes away brokenhearted. The church failing someone else. And Jesus suffering shame because His people won't stand up for His name. Let us not be the ones that let God down. Otherwise, as sure we read that. Verse 35, Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. You know, even if you're married to Nabal, which all of us are in our flesh, when that part of you hears the counsel of God, your soul and your spirit align and they reach out to God, He hears your request. He grants you peace. Even though you're deserving of death, because half of you or a third of you is, is a sinner. You're granted as righteous. You're credited with it. In fact, you're so credited with it, look what happens. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in his house holding a banquet like that of a king. Yeah, the flesh always. You're a king in your own mind. A regular legend all by yourself. He was high in spirits and very drunk. The, the flesh loves to do things like get drunk. Anything that hides guilt and magnifies self. So he told him nothing until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. What do you think that was? The man had a stroke. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Here's a message in that. Why did David not have to go kill Nabal? Because the Lord was fighting David's battles. And do you know why the Lord was fighting David's battles? Abigail told you a paragraph before because David was fighting the Lord's battles. See, when you're a friend of God, He's a friend of you. When you fight when He tells you to fight and don't when He doesn't, He will catch your back, as we say in our vernacular. David fought when God said go to war. Only one time I can remember he didn't and he ended up in a whole lot of sin and hurt. The time when kings go off to war, David stayed home. But most of the time when God said go, David went. So in this instance, when David relented, God took up the slack. You saw it with Saul as well. Saul's going to die not long from now because David did not do it. David even mourned when God's anointed did die. So he was like a stone and died. If you bring the Word of God into contact with your spirit that knows it's right, if your spirit and your soul, your mind, will, and emotions will align with the Word of God, Nabal will have a stroke in you. Your flesh will have a stroke. His heart will fail. He'll find no strength to defeat the other two parts of you. Sometimes your flesh is so loud. Think about the case of an addiction. You know, somebody who's addicted to crack, Nabal is so strong, so overbearing, that you can't hardly get away. But as the Word of God begins to penetrate that, as the spirit and the soul unite with the power of God's Word, Nabal gets smaller and smaller, and you can overpower your flesh. That is the walk of a Christian. That's what we call victory in the kingdom. Victory is not financial blessing. Victory is not that you got your praise on. Victory is none of those things. Victory is when you learn to put your flesh in submission to your spirit and your soul. And it's a daily process. So Nabal died. Well, when the flesh in you dies, what does that free your spirit up to do? When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, oh, Praise be to Yahweh, who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. When the flesh dies, you become that pure white virgin dressed in white, ready to meet your king. That's what the church is on the day that Jesus returns. Having put the enemies of God under our feet first in our lives, then in the world, we are ready for Jesus and like Paul said, we died to our first husband free to marry another. All of those analogies are right here in this story. You're free. 
You're free to do God's will every time you put to death the flesh. But as long as you encourage it, as long as you give ear to it, as long as you love it like a husband to you, you're not free to do what David wants you to do, to do what the king wants you to do. Abigail knew. She understood well. So it says, uh, she bowed down with her face to the ground and said, here is your maidservant ready to serve you and wash the feet of my master's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended and attended by her five maids, went with David's messengers and became his wife. What a glorious story. This woman was freed from bondage to a fool to be married to a king. And each one of us experiences that in our life and salvation. You're freed from the fool within to be married to the God of the universe. Freed from bondage to decay even. So much so that you're going to be made to be just like the king. Like Mephibosheth, the boy who couldn't walk right, you'll sit at the king's table and eat with his servants. God has great things in store for those of us that love Him. But the way you show Him you love Him is by your actions. You didn't have to wonder what was on Abigail's mind. Her actions showed it. What are your actions showing? Think about it with sober judgment. Let the fool in you have a heart attack and die. And live for God. Your obligation's not to Nabal. It's to God. We need to end here in the next five minutes or so. But I want to tell you a couple things. Uh, we don't need to preach on this was enough, I think. I'm learning not to force feed. I watched my sons, they catch these toads, right? And uh, they love these things. But my youngest is not, not far enough along. He's, he's kind of like me. He can be kind of dull sometimes. And... Uh, so he catches this toad that he loves. It's the it's apple of his eye. I mean, he carries it around. He, he says, Dad, this is the best toad in town. But because he loves it, he tries to shove so much food in its mouth that it dies. I don't want to do that to you guys on a Sunday morning. I love you. I love you. And you're not toads. You're princes. But I don't want to shove you with so much that you just die. So we'll keep this in mind. Maybe I'll preach this another time. But in Genesis 9, we've heard Ham, Shem, and Japheth are the table of nations. These are the young men that repopulated the earth. In them is representative of all mankind. Shem, the uh, blessed be the God of Shem. This is the Abrahamic faiths came from Shem. He gave the world religions. We've heard about Japheth and how Japheth is the Greek, the, the wise, the thinker, all of those things. And how people like the Roman, not the Romans, they were Ham, but the Greek philosophers and all came from Japheth. Then we see Ham, the colored peoples of, of the world for the most part. Not solely, but mostly. Who were the workforce, who got things done, who built sieges and destroyed cities and all of those things. And we learned about the nations from them. And what we failed to learn about Ham, Shem, and Japheth is that it teaches us about us. That's not the table of the nations. It's the table of Matthew Pirro or Eric Stevens or Mandy Wakefield. All of us have Ham, Shem, and Japheth in us. Shem is your spirit. It's the part of you that has been redeemed by God. And blessed be the God of Shem, of your spirit. And may Japheth, your soul, your mind, will, and emotions dwell in the tents of Shem. That's how it's supposed to be. Japheth is supposed to be in line with Shem. And may Canaan or Ham be cursed, the lowest of slaves. May he be a slave to his other two brothers. That is what that scripture is supposed to teach us. Not just the table of nations, but that your flesh is supposed to be subject to your mind, will, emotions, and the Spirit of God within you. When we see Hebrews 2, verse 8, and we find out that Jesus is exalted to the right hand, yet at the present, we don't see everything exalted. But it will be placed under His feet. We realize if it was a process with Jesus, if it was a process with Ham, Shem, and Japheth, if it was a process with Abigail and Nabal, it's a process with us. You know, if you look in the mirror and don't like what you see, you get a chance to redo it tomorrow. When we look at Exodus 23, verse 29, and this will be another message all in and of itself, God said, I've called you to that promised land. I said, yeah, I know, Lord. I'm so excited. He said, go in and take it. Oh, yeah, Jesus, we know. we, Man, that's awesome, Yahweh. We're going to go do it. He says, but I'm not going to give it to you all in a day. I'm going to give it to you little by little or else the wild animals and the ravenous beasts, they would overpower you. He said, what on earth? What is he talking about? If God gave you the end product today, Nabal, your flesh would be so proud, it would devour you. 
If you could do the things that Jesus did today. If when I was out at the lake yesterday with my relatives, I walked out on the water just to show everybody God's power, mind you. Eric's flesh would be so big that you couldn't have slid me through the door this morning. God will give you victory in every area of your flesh, little by little, so that it doesn't devour you in pride. So let's say, just for instance, that perhaps somebody in here might occasionally struggle with pride. As long as you're struggling, God will give you victory little by little so that you don't fall subject to that which He defeated in you. And that works that way with every other thing. That's why, you know, when somebody says, well, I've been struggling with this for years and I still don't have victory. You have victory every day that you are struggling. He's giving it to you little by little. What you need to not do is compromise and agree to live with Nabal. Agree to not fight. Agree to just, well, that's the way I am. I hate that phrase more than any other. And if you ever want me to come unglued, and I'm trying not to, let's be in a tense moment where we love the Lord and we're trying to figure out what God's will is and and you be in sin and cross your arms and look at me and say, well, that's just the way I am. You can just be the way you are somewhere else. Here, we are life-changing ministries. From me to you, all of us changing. And if you're not changing, it's because you are dead. Anything that's not growing anymore is dead. We're not going to be that way. So I hope you got something out of this, whether it's God's, whatever it is. All of us have been married to a fool, and we can divorce him to be with the king if we do it the king's way. Now, that is not at all counsel for anybody in here to get divorces, because some days we're the fool and some days we're the king. That's just the way it is. Uh, Stand up, we'll pray. Yeah, my wife will get that and be so excited. She goes, well, he said it. (laughs) She'll be in here with some seven-foot-tall Swede, you know.